Thank you, Kevin, and greetings. My name is Jay O'Brien, and welcome on this Easter Sunday. Well, anytime there's a holiday, it's an opportunity to just reflect and, and look back a little bit. And as we think of Easter 2020 compared to Easter 2019, a lot has changed. As you can tell, uh, we're not here together. I'm in the sanctuary alone, in the whole church building alone. And, uh, and that's, you know, there's some sadness in that. We're not gathering and partaking in communion together. We're not singing together. There's no handshakes and hugs and Buckeye donuts in the lobby after. And I, I don't get to see you look all so good. Now, I'm sure you're not in your pajamas now. I'm sure you dressed up like I did, but I, I don't get to see it. And speaking of dress up, you know, I, I did on the occasion wear a tie and a, uh, and a jacket doesn't fit quite as well as last year. Some of the social distancing of COVID-19 has led to some, you know, waste expansion for me. So I don't know if that's true for you, but, you know, such is the situation. A lot's changed. And some of that change, as I mentioned, is there's some sadness in that. You know, it's, it's sad that we can't be together. It, it feels weird. It just doesn't feel right. But as I was reflecting on Easter this year, Easter 2020, amid the differences and some of the sadness, I think that there's a real opportunity. An opportunity for us as a community faith and an opportunity for you personally. On holidays, it is tempting to, uh, amidst all the niceties, to miss the necessity of what it's all about. Amidst the dressing up and the and the Buckeye Donuts, and the Easter Egg Hunts, and, and all the things, the meals, we can miss the reason why we're celebrating. And I think this Easter 2020, God can invite you and me to really think about and contemplate when we take away all the niceties, the necessity of the resurrection in our life. And so this morning, I would like to talk if I could, just very pointedly and frankly about that, the good news of the resurrection. And there's a lot we could say. We could talk about why you can believe it, the historical reliability of the resurrection. We could talk about the implications for your life now and how it will change things. But I, what I want to explore with you is what does it look like to personally encounter the risen Lord? If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. You're welcome to use a hard copy. You're welcome to use your phone or another device. Or you can follow along. I'm going to read our passages as, as we go through. But Luke chapter 24. And in it, this just after Jesus' crucifixion, um, some of his friends, some women who were some of his followers, they were the first to go to the tomb, and they found it empty. And they've gone, and they've told the disciples. And now the word is getting around the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding region. And people are learning, followers of Jesus and others, are learning that the tomb is empty. And they're trying to make sense of it all. Here, Jesus was just crucified, and now his body seems to be taken. What do you do with all of this? And Luke records two people processing that situation. One of the guys' names we know is Cleopas, and the other we, we don't know, but they're processing the grief and sadness of the death 
of one of their friends and leaders, Jesus. They were followers of his. But then also, how sense with the news that his body is now gone. And along the journey, in the midst of their sadness, Jesus enters into, the, into their story. And Jesus approaches them and they're sad. Here it is. In the midst of grief, in the midst of the confusion and the death, Jesus is right there with them and yet they don't notice him. They don't see him. And I think many of us can feel that tension today. In the midst of the, the mess, the chaos, the confusion of our present situation, where is Jesus? Well, I want to show you how you and I, how we can encounter him in life today. And I want to point to four ways. I, I'm, I'm going to try to be brief uh, this morning. Four ways we encounter the risen Lord today. The first the first way we encounter is we encounter Jesus on the painful road, on the journey of suffering. We encounter Jesus most often not when we're just studying the Bible and trying to make sense of the world. We encounter Jesus not primarily in just the dorm room setting where we're learning and engaging and thinking about the philosophy of life. We encounter Jesus most readily in the moments of pain and grief. Here, picking up in verse 17, again, Cleopas and his friend, they're, they're confused and they're sad. And, and Jesus enters in. He says, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And then it records, it says, and they stood still. Some translations would say stopped. They stood still looking sad. Here they are walking on the journey, Jesus shows up. He says, what are you guys talking about? And what they were talking about was so sad and confusing and chaotic for them that they just stopped. As they were thinking about what is happening, they just stopped. Sometimes in life, there's life-stopping pain. The message from the doctor your spouse showing up with the divorce papers, the words of someone you love, a child, moments in life that hurt to such a degree that you just stop. The whole trajectory of the road and the journey and the path is now going to be different. Have you experienced life-stopping pain in your life? Maybe when you envision the road, your future, where you were heading, you didn't envision chronic illness. Maybe as you, at that ceremony, when you said, I do, and you thought of the journey ahead together, you didn't envision it would lead to pain and divorce. When you celebrated the birth of your child, when you envisioned the road of their future, you couldn't have imagined that it would lead to relational pain and separation? Are there things you envisioned in your story, in your life, that have not played out the way you had hoped? We have in here life-stopping pain, and it takes many forms. Life-stopping pain can be the death of a loved one. Uh, these two friends are grieving the loss of their leader. But not only that, it can be the death of certainty. 
In verse 14, it says that they were talking. And, and the Greek here is the idea of a heated exchange. Whatever they're talking about, they're, t- they're speaking passionately about it. They had plans. They'd gone to Jerusalem, most likely as followers of Jesus, with dreams. In fact, we see the death of dreams. In verse 21, when they were explaining to Jesus what they, they said this, he said, but we had hoped that he, that Jesus, was the one to redeem Israel. But we had hoped. They traveled to Jerusalem in this Passover season to to practice the Passover, but also they were hoping that Jesus, the Messiah, would, would, would fix some things and they didn't envision when they traveled there that they'd be leaving with him having been crucified. You see, the death of dreams. Life does that. We have dreams of our future and then we see them die. And where is Jesus in these moments? Where is he? What we see in the passage is he's present. Even though they don't see it at first. Even though they don't know, Jesus is present. And he's not present with a minimizing word. He doesn't, he doesn't try to, well, hey guys, let's look on the bright side. On one occasion, and we say we talk about this so often at Scarlet City, Jesus, he says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the, the mourners. He doesn't minimize the pain. He also doesn't show up and fix the pain. He doesn't do a magic reveal like, hey guys, I'm here, I'm back. Jesus, right here. No, he shows up and he asks a question. He says, what is it that you're talking about? Which is to say, can I join the conversation? Can I join the road with you? In hard moments in life, when we find ourselves in that life-stopping pain, what we need is not a, a minimizing voice. What we need is not a just trite response. What we need is someone who's in it with us. And the beauty of Jesus is he really is that he entered into life, experienced pain. And so when he joins us in the moment, he joins as someone whom we can trust, whom has traveled the road of rejection and death before us. You know, in our um, COVID-19 situation, there are many people, many celebrities, who have had good intentions. They've wanted to help And so they've recorded messages saying, hey, maintain social distancing. And often they say, we're in this together. And in one sense, that's true. In one sense, a virus and death and suffering is not a respecter of persons. You can be wealthy or poor and you can catch it just the same. But it still rings hollow. As the richest people, some of the most rich and powerful people in the world record this saying in their luxurious mansion in Malibu, sitting in their hot tub and their surroundings, we watch and we feel not that we're in this together, but we feel the distance. That this person of prestige and privilege and power has access to testing while others do not, has access to some of the best health care that others do not. And so there's 
sometimes, even though I understand the intentions and appreciate it on one level, it still can come across as trite. Jesus left the throne of heaven, entered into the world, was born by a young teenage girl in a manger, a home for animals, and he experiences rejection and crucifixion. When he is present in pain, he is present as someone who has experienced the harshest realities that life can throw at you. We encounter Jesus on the painful road. And also, we encounter Jesus on the hopeful road. We encounter Jesus through our longing for redemption. When we think of when we look to the heart and our dreams and our, and our desires and what we long for, our hopes, we can find him there. Again, in the text, Cleopas, he's been explaining to Jesus about Jesus. So, so interesting. And he puts it this way. We reference this already, but in verse 20, he says, And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to, be condemned to death and crucified him. And then verse 21 but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. He says we had, we had hoped. Now, what had he hoped? What had he and his friend and, and other followers of Jesus, what, were, what was their desire? What were they longing for? What was their hope? Their hope was that Jesus would come and redeem Israel by delivering it from Roman oppression and Roman rule. The, the word redeem literally means to deliver, to deliver from slavery, to deliver from bondage. They had hoped that Jesus would come and fix their circumstances. That he would come and overthrow the Roman Empire, that God's people would finally be liberated and free. He says we had hoped that he was the one to bring liberation We had hoped that Jesus would be the one who would enter our circumstances and fix the pain. In this season of life, there is a united hope around the world that a virus or that a vaccine would be found that can can prevent the virus from spreading. We have a hope that a cure that would be found, that new practices would be implemented that protect people that allow us to enter back into the way of life as we knew it before, that allow us to enter back into gathering as a community of faith, that allow us to enter back into our work and jobs, that allow us to get back to a sense of not social distancing, but social uniting. There is a hope that medicine will find a cure, but there is no vaccine for death. Whether we avoid COVID-19, or our future holds cancer, or heart disease, or a tragic accident, all of us will one day perish. There is no vaccine for death. And this speaks to the real longing that many of us have. And as I think of the longing for, that they had that, that Jesus would redeem them from the oppression of Rome, as we think of the longing that we have that a vaccine would be found from COVID-19, that we would not deal with the tragedy of deaths that could be prevented. It speaks to a heart that longs 
for resurrection and redemption. One author, C.S. Lewis, uh, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia and a number of profound books, and his, in one of his most famous books, Mere Christianity, he speaks about this. He says, that, he says, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do they would know that what they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world there are all sorts of things in this world that this world offers to you offers to give you but they never quite keep their promise and here's what he gets to he says if i find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You read that again. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. He continues, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. What Lewis so beautifully puts into words is that when we stop and we consider the longings that we have, the longings, the human longings, the human longing for salvation, the human longing for deliverance, the human longing for acceptance, the human longing for life, we are brought to a place of considering the joyous hope that nothing in this world can fully satisfy. And so we must be creative for and destined for a place that does. Not only do we encounter Jesus on the painful road, we encounter Jesus in the moments of our deepest longings. That Jesus and following him does not lead us to minimize our dreams. He doesn't want to minimize your pain. He also doesn't want to minimize your dream. He says that your dream can be found in him. And the, and the world that he offers is so glorious, so beautiful, so amazing that we wouldn't even recognize it if we saw it. Jesus offers and brings hope. We encounter him on the painful road. We encounter him on the hope for redemption, but also we encounter Jesus when our heart is awakened to the beauty of the gospel. In, the, in Jesus' conversation with them, he describes, he teaches from the Bible. And he teaches in such a way that it was so profound. In verse 32, they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us while he was speaking with us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? What was it about Jesus' teaching about the Scriptures that made their hearts burn? That made their hearts burn with joy and hope and passion? It wasn't that Jesus was just some amazing teacher. It wasn't that he just diagrammed the text and brought out things that they hadn't known and they now were a little more enlightened. No, he unpacked 
the whole point of what the Bible was about. It says this in verse 27, Jesus, as he's teaching, he says, then, bringing, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. Jesus lays out before them what the Bible fundamentally is about. And it is important for us to consider, what is the Bible? What is the Bible about? There's really, if you boil it down, there's two ways that you can read the Bible. One way is to read the Bible and to see it that it is fundamentally about your work on God's behalf. That the Bible is a collection of stories and writings that are meant to communicate good moral teachings. And if you obey them, you will be all right with God. If you have the faith like Moses, you also can do good and mighty things. If you have the faith like David, you can defeat the giants in your life. There's a way of reading the Bible, of putting yourself at the center, and think it's about what you do on God's behalf. And if you do the good and right things, then God will give you what you want. And it enters into this transactional relationship with God where God has something we want, good behavior, and God has something we want, and that is blessings. If we do the right thing, obey the stories, live by faith, then God will invite us in. That's reading the Bible as it's fundamentally about you, but there's another way of reading the Bible, the way that Jesus explains, and that is to read the Bible that it is fundamentally about God's work on your behalf. Not your work on God's behalf, but God's work on your behalf. The Bible is fundamentally a story about God and His work. From creation, when God brings all things into being, to revelation, when God redeems all things and renews all of creation. The Bible is the story of God redeeming, healing, renewing all things. Jesus is the center of the story. He is the ultimate Moses, the one who leads God's people out of the bondage of sin and death. Jesus is the ultimate David who defeats the Goliaths in our life that we never could and can. Jesus is what the story is fundamentally about. You see, every character in the Bible have one thing in common. And it's not their great and impressive faith and ethics. It is that they all fail. Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, all of the kings of Israel, Jesus' first disciples. They all fail. And they are a testimony to the grace and love and work of Jesus. You see, this is what makes Christianity and Jesus' gospel message fundamentally different from any other message in the world. It is not the Christian ethics that ultimately set us apart. It is what motivates those ethics. You see, a number of years ago, there were bracelets, you may remember them, the WWJD, What Would Jesus Do Bracelets? And really, every other religion, 
every other ethical system is a WWJD. What would Jesus do? It's a way of living that says, okay, in this situation, what would Jesus, what's the right thing to do? Is the, really the, the question. And now, ignoring for a fact that there's a, most of the decisions in our life, we don't know what Jesus would do. It's merely hypothetical. But even in those ones where it's clear, what would Jesus do? That's not what the Bible is. It's not a manual for discerning what would Jesus do. The Bible is fundamentally a message of what Jesus has done. It's not what would Jesus do, it's what has he done on your behalf. And how has what he done, what he's done, shape, shape everything you do? What is countercultural about the gospel and the Christian movement is that it is news, not it is good news, not good advice. It is about what Jesus has done in your place and the invitation that that brings into your life. That you are invited into the family of God. That you have a home now and a home for eternity through the finished work of Jesus. And friends, in this season, there is no message more beautiful in a world that says you are accepted by how many followers you have on social media. You are accepted by the number of likes you get on that picture that you post. You are accepted by the amount of money in your bank account. You're accepted by having the nice mansion in Malibu. You're accepted by excelling in your career. In the world that says you are accepted by this, the gospel says you are freely accepted into the kingdom of God, not based on your performance, but on the performance of of Jesus. And that, that is the most beautiful message, the most beautiful news in the history of the world. I'd invite you to consider another message, another word to bank your life on that's more compelling. We encounter Jesus on the road of pain We encounter Jesus by getting in touch with our hopes and dreams. We encounter Jesus when our heart is awakened to the beauty of His grace. And lastly and briefly as we close, we encounter the risen Lord at the table. It is not until verse 30, when He had taken His place at the table, they invited Jesus into their home. Jesus takes His place at the table and He took the bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. At this point, their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. It wasn't until the intimacy of a meal with Jesus that they saw Him for who He truly was. Friends, as we Continue in this day, this Easter season, and the days that follow. Know that Jesus can join you in the path. Know He can enter into your dreams and longings and hopes. Know that His message can be the defining, beautiful word and message of your life. And know that all of it, all of it, is meant to invite you to His table. That you experience intimacy and communion with Him. They see Jesus by breaking bread with Jesus. They see Jesus not conceptually through His teaching. 
They see Jesus not just being able to share about the pain in their journey. They see Jesus through the most intimate moments of their life. Friends, this Resurrection Sunday, as we let go of some of the niceties and step into the necessity of the resurrection, would you consider inviting Jesus into your story? Maybe you've never placed your faith in him. Easter has always been a show up at church, or maybe you've never donned the doors of a church. Maybe you're someone who's been going to church your whole life and you've, you're just trying to measure up and you've never, the, the message of grace has never really gripped your heart. Wherever you are, whether you've been following Jesus all your life or you're brand new, would you in this season invite him into your heart? Would you open yourself up to encounter the risen Lord? Let's pray. Lord, may the good news of the gospel shape our minds that we may think like you think. That we may see the world through the lens that you see it. But let it not just shape our mind, let it penetrate our heart. That we are more in all of your grace. That we are moved to make you the center of our life. And may it be displayed in our hands. May we, like your first followers, join you in the mission of living resurrection. May we be emboldened to enter into the darkness of our present moment, embodying and pointing to the light of your Son, in whose name we pray, and by the Spirit, amen.